I want to thank Dave and the group for leading us this morning in a time of excellent worship. What, what wonderful, doctrinally pure songs we sang this morning. Words that count for something. And my heart was reminded of this passage. Maybe you'll connect with this. Paul writes in Romans 4, beginning in verse 22, That is why Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. That is so key. God did not hide the fact that we are not to earn our righteousness. From the very beginning, he said, For your sakes, I will always make it clear that I am your righteousness. So he said, I've counted his faith as righteousness. Not just for Abraham's sake, but so that everyone might know. That's why it's written that way. What a beautiful, beautiful word about who Christ is and who our God is, wanting to always communicate to us clearly the way of salvation. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone. But for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Listen to this. Who was delivered up for our trespasses. The fact is, Jesus Christ died because we are sinners. The world hates that doctrine. Many in the Christian church today hate that doctrine. It has been labeled as cosmic child abuse by many pastors today. They have cut it out of their Bibles. C.H. Dodd began 70 years ago attacking the idea of substitutionary atonement. And the, the attack has gone on and has intensified. Today it's called the bloody doctrine. Many would even say we are blaspheming to even dare to say that God would be wrathful against our sins and punish His Son for it. And yet Paul says He was delivered up for our trespasses. And the second part of the phrase is and raised up for our justification. Let that sink in. The only reason that it's not cosmic child abuse that God crucified His Son on our behalf, the only reason is because He raised Him up. He didn't merely kill His Son. He didn't merely offer Himself up. He raised Himself up. If Christ had run off the end of a pier, just imagine this. A man sitting on the end of a pier, somewhat fishing, minding his own business. And a guy runs down the pier screaming, I love you, I love you, I love you. And he jumps off the pier into the water and drowns. That wouldn't be righteous. That wouldn't be loving. That'd be foolish. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't run off the pier of God's wrath into this ocean and drowned because we were saved. 
We were drowned. We were drowned. And Christ plunged Himself into our debt. He plunged Himself into our penalty, into what we deserved. And from the depths, He was raised up. And Paul says, you and I were raised up in Him and seated in the heavenly places. And so when they say child abuse, I say glory. When they say murder, I say sacrifice. When they say foolish, bloody doctrine, I say glorious, gracious love of our Father. And so when we sing about the cross here, you may look around this building, there's not crosses erected here. There's no crucifix on the wall. We don't seek to cause you to look at a cross and think about the cross. We want you to read about the cross sing about the cross, hear the cross preached about, and in that, in your mind, God will construct the beautiful, gracious, loving doctrine of your salvation. The cross is beautiful only because He raised Him from the dead. And that's what excites my soul about a service that's full of singing like that. That's why I love the old hymns. Because they don't cut out that doctrine. They sing about death. They sing about blood. They sing about sacrifice. And we need to always be busy thinking, focusing on that truth. He was delivered up for our trespasses and He was raised for our justification. What a beautiful truth. What a beautiful doctrine. And that doctrine is what allows us to talk about any doctrine with any sense of cohesiveness and truth. If Christ had not been our righteousness, then what I'm about to teach you would be works righteousness. And it'd be futile, it'd be impossible, and we would all fail, and we'd all be under the penalty of death. As Carlton said so clearly this morning, we get off track because we run to works first and begin to improve ourselves. That's not the command found in the Scripture. The command found in Scripture is to see the law and our failure in all of the law and run to Christ. Having run to Christ, repented of our sins, now He works in and through us to will and do His good pleasure. We were created in Christ Jesus as His workmanship to accomplish the work which He accomplished beforehand. That's what Ephesians 2.10 says. And so what I'm about to teach you out of Titus is both controversial and, uh, and it may be troubling to you. Uh, I understand that this is probably one of the most controversial topics and passages in all of Scripture these days. Many men have been fired. I hope I'm not one of them. Many men have been fired. Most have been attacked, threatened, and even... Silenced for preaching these truths. Just let me read the text that uh, we're going to focus in on and then let, let me il- give you the points of the message and then illustrate for you and then move into the points. So we're, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We've talked about elders. We've talked about older men. We've talked about older women. And now we're to the end of verse 3 where it says, 
Older women are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. That the Word of God may not be reviled. This passage that we're looking at today calls us to order like all the others. Older women, it calls you to be actively teaching and training younger women in specific roles for their life. Now, let me give you the points of the message. If you're taking notes, we're, we're going to go through them and you'll see them. They're on the, they'll be on the screen for you later. But older women, first of all, must train younger women to love their husbands primarily. And then they must learn to love their children. The order is important. Older women, secondly, must teach and train young women to be sensible and sexually pure. That's the second point. Third, older women must teach and train young women to be homemakers. Now you know why many have been fired, persecuted, and run out of churches for preaching this. Older women must teach and train young women to be kind. Older women, fifth point, must teach and train young women to be submissive to their own. If you underline in your Bible, underline own husbands. And what is the result, the final culmination of all of this teaching and training the older women will do for the younger women? Older women will see that the result of their teaching will be the upholding the holding forth and a safety guard around the gospel. This truth in the middle of our passage is taught that this truth of how older women train younger women and those younger women in like turn obey the older women's teaching keeps the word of God from being reviled. We're going to talk about that in the end. So five points and a conclusion. In 1970, Paige and Dorothy Patterson completed their work as seminary students at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. I do mean that they completed their seminary work because both of them had worked on degrees. Paige had received his master's and his doctorate in turn Dorothy, while he was working on his degree, also completed a master's studying both Hebrew and Greek extensively so that she might know how to teach her children the Bible. She had no, no desire to be a traveling teacher of the Word. She simply wanted to rightly teach her children the Word of God so she learned the original languages. They graduated and... They went to Fayetteville, Arkansas, where he became the pastor of First Baptist Church, Fayetteville, Arkansas. And Dorothy entered into what she calls a time of mass confusion in her life. Because up until this point, 
She had worked. She had been a professional secretary. She had uh, been a young mother. They had a two-year-old at the time. She had been the wife of a seminary student. She had been the pastor's wife because he was pastoring while he was going to seminary. She had fulfilled all of these roles. And when they got to Fayetteville, she left all of those roles behind except being a wife to her husband and a mother to her child. She said, I was totally confused. I was, I was in a sense, she says, uh, caught in a fog of all I'd ever known of what I was as a woman. And so she entered into this crisis, and whatever she was going to do to get out of it, she didn't know, so she asked her husband. And because he was a busy pastor, I'm sure he told her, study the Bible. She said, what part? He said, all of it. Study the Bible, cover to cover. You know how to study the Bible. You study the Bible and find for yourself what Christ teaches, what His Word teaches about the role of a woman. She undertook this study. She studied from Genesis to Revelation. And she left that study committed to being a wife and a mother for the sake of the kingdom of God. Miss Patterson writes this. Women have been liberated right out of the genuine freedom they enjoyed for centuries to oversee the home. Remember the voice that you're hearing. This isn't me speaking. A man, this isn't Paige Patterson talking about women. This is Miss Patterson, skilled and trained Miss Patterson, talking about her role. Remember where she is in time. I wasn't alive in 1970, but I hear tell that it was a liberated time just after the 60s revolution, right? Where we were burning things in the streets and free from the shackles and chains of being a mere wife and mother. This is what she said. Women have been liberated right out of the genuine freedom they enjoyed for centuries to oversee the home, rear the children, and pursue personal creativity. They've been brainwashed to believe that the absence of a uh, they have been brainwashed to believe that the absence of a titled payroll op- occupation enslaves a woman to failure, boredom, and imprisonment within the confines of home. Though feminism speaks of liberation, self-fulfillment, personal rights, and breaking down barriers, these phrases inevitably mean the opposite. Our world's been turned upside down is what she's saying. We live in a world that is wrong side up. We don't even realize now, 30 years later, 38 years later, that what she's talking about staying at home, most women don't even know that's an option because their mothers didn't do it and now they're not doing it. It's never crossed their minds. Estimated rough numbers Around 80% of women now in America work full-time jobs while trying to mother. And it's, in a sense, wreaking havoc on our society. Our, Our world is upside down. And you might say that this is new, but I would say this has been the relentless attack on society by Satan since Genesis chapter 2. 
God created them, male and female. And He said it was good. He gave them distinguished roles in the garden to fulfill. And the first thing Satan did was come to the woman and challenge God's authority. Right? He came to her knowing, knowing that she was to follow her husband. So he's broken the command chain already. Right? If he wanted to make a household decision, who should he have gone to? Adam. Where did he go? Eve. It's been the relentless attack of Satan over the centuries to displace the roles in marriage and family, to destroy the family, therefore destroy the community, the church, the nation, the world. That's his desire, to wreak confusion, to ultimately lead people down a lost road which leads to nowhere but hell. Now I say that because I think that's what Paul means. I think that's why he put this here at the end, that the Word of God may not be reviled. He's saying it that strongly. This is not back burner material. This is not second wave stuff. This is fighting for the gospel, Paul would say. This is fighting for the gospel to be rightly ordered. It's created uh, an ungodly desire once they fail in the woman to rule over her husband. God says as much when He says, Your desire shall be for your husband. That word in chapter 3, desire, is the sa- it's not a sexual desire. It's the same word used to Cain in chapter 4. Sin desires to rule over you, but you must rule over it. It's the same word. You see, so what God's saying is your desire is for your husband to rule over him, to usurp him in the role of leader of the home. That's your desire. And it's born in the fabric of every fallen woman, which is all women. There's this thought that you know better than God. God's clearly spoken on the issue of men and women in relationship Both the Old and the New Testament speak loud and clear on the issue of equality in Christ, yet separation of roles in the husband-wife relationship, and still both men and women excuse and remove the commands. And so we we enter into these troubled waters, not wanting to know what does the world teach us, not wanting to know what practically works, We want to know, what does God say? What does God say through Paul? Let's look at that. Older women, first of all, it should be on there uh, if you'll scroll to it. Older women must teach and train young women to love their husbands primarily, and then they must love their children. That's verse 4. Young women are to be committed, we might say, to their husbands. Committed to their husbands. She must see her life as a help to her husband. Truly, the first word spoken about woman was that she was a helpmate to the man. And so she must see herself. Every young woman must begin to see herself as the helper of her husband. She must not only love him sexually, but also honor and cherish him. 
She doesn't just love him in a physical sense, but she reveres and honors him, looks to him with those eyes that indicate a love that's beyond physical attraction. It's committedness. It's a decision. Love is a decision. If I could say anything to people who are not married yet, but seek to be married one day, I would say this. Love is not an emotion. Love is a willful choice. What you need to hear is not, are you attracted to this person physically? What you need to hear is, can I commit to this person for the rest of my days until God separates us by death? Am I ready and mature enough at this point in my life, whatever point that is, to forsake everything else and commit to this one and this one only? For richer, for poor, for sickness and for health, for the good and for the bad. Is that what I'm willing to do? And if not, I don't care how good looking she is, I don't care how handsome he is and athletic he is and charming he is, run from marriage. Because it'll fail. I have people come to me often and say, how do I know when, I'm, when this is the one? I mean, what feeling do I get? To which I crush romanticism by saying, you can't feel it. You've got to decide it. That sounds cold, I know crushes all of Shakespeare's beauty, doesn't it? Listen, marriage is built on this kind of love. Older women, in our society, we need you to tell young women it's not a fairy tale that you're entering into. It's not Cinderella. He's not going to come riding up on a white horse every day, get off with roses, and woo you. What you've entered into is a life of commitment. Why did Paul say this in his day? Because even the system of the world in his day was set up to choose for the husband and wife relationship to be chosen by the parents. They were covenanted into marriage. And Paul's saying, you may not feel like loving him, But because you've entered this covenant, you must commit to love Him. Paul knows nothing. The Bible knows nothing of this romantic fairy tale. Now, to encourage you singles, it is true that the more you commit to loving that man or woman, the more passionately romanced you will be by them. God did not look at you and say, that is a lovely being. I think I'd like to say that and have a relationship with it. God looked at you and said, that right there is despicable, sinful, rebellious, and utterly worthy of my absolute wrath. But I choose to love that. And make it mine. And no matter how much it fails, I will not fail. I will love that person into eternity so that they may be the image of my son. 
And what I'm saying to you, when you stand at a marriage altar, young people, what you're saying is, not she's beautiful, not she's romantic, not she's talented, not she's charming, not she looks like she'd be a good mom to my kids, not all that stuff. What you're saying is, as sinful as she is, and as much troubled water as we will enter into in this life, I will forsake every other option in life and only stay committed to this woman. I covenant between myself and God today that I will not break this relationship. Older women, I'm begging you, teach our women how to love that way. If you don't, then our marriages will fail. The next generation will not enter into life married. They'll enter in married and divorced and remarried and divorced again. Third, she must love him even if he is unlovable. Now, men are never unlovable. I know. It's hard for you women to imagine that a man could be unlovable. No, what's probably hard to imagine is when is he ever lovable? (laughs) When does he ever get it right? When is he ever like Christ? Not Well, let me think. Maybe there was one time back in early our marriage when he didn't act like Jesus. No, but let me think. Has he ever acted like Jesus towards me? Isn't that right? Then that's truth. Men are fallen, and so young women must be told, love him even though he's not worthy of your love. Finally, he would say in this statement, she must sacrifice her way, her desires, and her dreams to live in love and godly relationship with her husband. Young women are a model of sacrifice. That was the title of the message. Ladies, I've just got to tell you, though we are called to be as Christ to you, I'm going to be honest with you you have a great opportunity to look like Christ towards us. A great opportunity. You say, I don't don't think I have to sacrifice my dreams. I don't have to sacrifice my desires. I can be married and have a good marriage and not do that. Could Christ have saved us unless He was willing to sacrifice heaven, the glory of Shekinah dwelling in the Holy of Holies? Could He have saved us had He stayed on His throne? Could He have saved us without becoming a man, a humble servant, even to the death, an embarrassing death on the cross? No. And so when I'm saying sacrifice your life and your dreams and your desires, what I'm really calling to, what I believe Paul was calling these old women to teach young women is, you are His helper. His desires must be fulfilled at all costs. Help Him do it. And in doing that, you are fulfilling your greatest desire. You just don't know it yet. You just don't know it yet. Your greatest desire that's down in that new woman that God has made you into through the gospel, your deepest desire is that your husband succeed in life. Because that was Eve's greatest desire for her husband, Adam. And God is returning us to that. And so at first it seems odd and different and strange, but yet it is the call of the Bible. 
There's a parallel to this in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, which for time's sake we won't read that passage. And also we might look at Proverbs 31, which never mentioned, it mentions so many things about the virtuous woman, but it never mentions her rights. It never mentions her own desires. It never mentions her dreams. It never mentions any of that. You might say, in our pop psychology, her world was swallowed up by her husband and her home and her children. was totally engulfed in it. So that a psychologist might look at her and say, well, she's deformed. She doesn't have her own self. And yet she would say, no, I am my own self. And I'm experiencing great freedom in my role as a woman. I challenge you, read Proverbs 31. You'll never find a statement about personal desire from that woman. Yet her desire was for her husband. And she was content and happy. So young women must be committed to their husbands. Older women, you must teach this. You must also teach them to love their and committed, be committed to their children. I've substituted the word committed for love because I want you to understand that's what this means. She must love her children unconditionally. She must love her children sacrificially. Again, a mom often stands behind unseen these children as they grow up. They're just great kids. Oh, they're so obedient. You must have been blessed with good kids. And all the time the mom's sitting there saying, no, I've been pouring my blood and sweat and tears into that little munchkin. And yet nobody notices that. They say, boy, you know, they're just perfect, aren't they? Little angels. It's sacrifice. She must love her children intentionally. There must be purpose in the relationship with the child. To train them in the righteousness that only comes from the Scripture. And through godly living, it must be purposeful and intentional. Not haphazard and just fly by the seat of the pants. She must love her child evangelistically. 1 Timothy 2 verse 10 is a very controversial passage also. But what it basically says is that women, mothers, are responsible in some ways for the salvation of children. That they continue in the faith and self-control. It's a mother's responsibility. It'll only be done through the grace and goodness of God, but it is your responsibility. So never is there this statement for the biblical mom, well, my kids just a renegade, as if it's just their fault, yet the biblical mom cries over her lost children, prays for her lost children, teaches her lost children, pleads with her lost children. Never gives up on her lost children. Always trusting that God will one day save them by His grace. And ladies, I don't know when that will happen. There are women in this congregation who have children that are grown and out of the house and not saved. And I'm not condemning. I'm trying to encourage. Don't quit. Don't give up. Continue to pray and plead and beg and do all you might do so they might be saved by the grace of God. It's your responsibility. If a mom won't pray for that lost child, who will pray for him? Who will pray for her? 
The father in the prodigal son story is a beautiful picture. That dad resolutely sitting there waiting on that boy to come home. And I think while he was waiting, he was praying. Bring him home. Come on. Come home. That's the picture of a mother. Older women will have to train our younger women in this respect. Older women must train and teach young women to be sensible and sexually pure. Young women must learn to be sensible. Now, this is the same word that's used in chapter 1, verse 8 about the elder. Self-controlled, you see it there. It's also used in verse 2. Older men are to be self-controlled. And it's also in this passage in verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled. All Christians are called to live self-controlled lives. And the young woman is called to be self-controlled. Obviously, this is a characteristic of age and wisdom and experience. But even as a young woman, you must learn to be self-controlled. Don't go with your passions. We talked about last week how a woman's often driven by passions, so easily driven by emotions, hormones, and passions. And what Paul seems to be saying is older women teach them that when life isn't going their way today, it's not the end of the world. And when it's going perfect, Bad times are coming. Live self-control. Don't give up the fight. Don't quit. They must learn to be disciplined, self-controlled, self-disciplined. Young women must learn to be sexually pure. Now, this word here, pure, means morally pure. It indicates holiness, but it's particularly used in the sexual realm. Women must be trained to be sexually pure. She must find beauty in spiritual beauty, not outward appearance. And when I say sexual purity, often we think about the lustful intentions of a man. But many women, especially young women, are in sexual impurity because they're enticing others to lust after them. And what Paul seems to be indicating here to the older women is training them not to do that, but to live pure and holy lives, upright. Moral lives, reserved, modest women. That's what he seems to be calling for. We need modest women. Isn't it amazing how a woman, and it's not to excuse a man's behavior, but a woman dressed provocatively with no thought about a man and his desires. But if something inappropriate is said or done, she cries foul. Obviously, it's a foul. No question about it. That man should restrain himself, run, flee sexual temptation. Yet Paul would say, but you have a responsibility too, young woman. You are beautiful on the outside. You are attractive. God has made you that way for your husband. So be modest in public that you might attract your husband and not other men. And that's what he's saying. Young women might not know that. There is a sense and an air of, like for a man, when uh, someone brags on his accomplishments, his uh, work ethic, he puffs up and gets proud. When a woman's appearance is complimented unduly and too much, she gets prideful in her looks on the exterior. And Peter says, let your adornment not be on the outside, the braiding of hair and the wearing of jewelry, but let it be on the inside. One who lives a gentle and quiet and submissive life. 
And so some of you older women are probably sitting here looking around thinking, well, they got a long way to go in that area. Our young women, man, they're, they're out of line. And all I'm saying to you is, how are they going to know? Unless you teach them. Society sure isn't teaching them. Right? I've been shopping with my wife. Me and I encourage you, go shopping with your wife sometime. You'll have to pass by 99% of the clothes in the store to get one thing that might be appropriate this day and time. It's a hard battle. And young women need help, not only from their husbands, but from their older women in their lives. Because when they start living this way, they're going to be called prudes, Puritans, all these mean things. And yet, they need to be encouraged. No, you're doing the right thing. She must learn to direct all sexual desire toward her husband only, like Sarah did to Abraham. We often talk about that story of Sarah and Abraham, and we talk about Abraham lying and putting her in the harem of Pharaoh, but notice she didn't run after Pharaoh either. And Pharaohs were known to be good-looking, young, strapping men. And yet, she remained committed even when her husband wasn't committed. She remained committed. So, all your sexual desire toward your husband, fulfilled in your husband. Older women must teach and train young women to be homemakers. Is it hot in here? Is there tension in the room? He's about to tell us we've all got to stay at home. Don't wear makeup. Don't fix our hair. And be submissive. Brother Lawrence said this. Notice, I chose a man for this quote. He was a monk, and he was in the, his duty was to to act like a woman. Uh, he had all the he often talks about that in his journal. He's always doing womanly jobs, and you know, I'm sure he felt like more of a man. But um, listen to what he says. This is a prayer. Lord of all pots and pans and things. Make me a saint by getting meals and washing up plates. The time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees at the blessed sacrament. Does that describe your kitchen? That's not, how I dis- that's not a description of how I do my daily work. Often I find myself doing daily work as a drudgery, a routine, a burden. I'm just got to get it done. Let's just hurry up and get this finished. I'm tired of doing this. And women, you probably find yourself that way. Maybe more so because you're at home. Nobody sees what you do. And then you clean and break your back all day and have this good meal cooked. Your husband comes in, throws his junk all over the place, sits down, eats, and gets up and goes about some more business and never compliments your work, never thanks you. He's disrespectful and makes you bitter. And yet, 
This idea of homemaking is a worship to God. And so you're building a cathedral of worship in your home. That's what you're doing. That's what Paul's calling you to do. Make it a place of worship in every mundane task I've got to do. It's going to be worship. I'm going to be in tranquility. Things may be chaotic, crazy. I'm going to be in tranquility before my God. Because He's just as much God when I'm washing the dishes as He is when I'm in my devotion. There's just as much opportunity for me to learn the character of Christ when I'm reading the Bible or when I'm changing a diaper and talking to a two-year-old. There's just as much opportunity. It's just will I seize it? Will I do it? The home in this statement here. Notice he doesn't say all women must stay at home. Notice he doesn't say men must make their women stay at home. Notice he says older women teach them to work at home. What does home provide for a woman, a young woman? It provides a place of self-esteem where she can be fulfilled, see that her hands are productive. That's what the Proverbs woman found. She found production there. It can be a place of service. It can be a place of hospitality, which is a great gift from God. And what would I say, some things I might say about the home. First, women home must be first, not third, not fourth. It must be first. It must be central, central to every task you do. The home must be central. It must be a joy and satisfaction for you. It's not enough to just be good and stay home and be miserable. It's not what Paul's talking about. He's saying, no, it's a joy. Teach them it's a joy. Teach them it's satisfaction to be there. Teach them it's an honor to God. And your home must be a platform for ministry. Our homes are not ministry-driven anymore because most of the time both people are working and when they get home, they're too tired to do ministry. They're worn slap out. So ministry is a burden. And what Paul's saying is, older women, if you'll just teach them that the home is a beautiful place for ministry, it's a great opportunity for hospitality. If you'll teach them that their home is central and first in their life, it will be well with them. And so am I saying that all women must be at home in every situation. Remember I said at the beginning, we're not trying to see what's practical, nor are we trying to see what our culture says. We're just trying to see what God says here. And may I just say, it's a sad state that we live in where many women have to work. Because their husbands have abandoned them. Because the church doesn't care for them. But, maybe some unknown financial burden has come upon your family. And it's forced you out of the home to work. And so what does that mean for you working ladies? It means now your task is harder. It means that still, though you work for a boss outside the home, the home is still first. It doesn't excuse you, in other words, from being a homemaker. 
because you work outside the home. You, your, your plight may be harder than other women's. And to be honest with you, the church and people ought to try to get that burden off of women as much as possible. Their family ought to try to get it off of them as much as possible. It's not a mandate so much as it is the statement of what is best. I would say that. Is he requiring it? Oh, we might say no. He's not requiring it. But what he is saying is, if you choose the road of working and homekeeping, it's a hard road. Almost impossible. I'll just say that. It's almost impossible. And so if you're in that situation, my prayers go out to you regularly because you're in some way in danger. Outside the home is seen as a dangerous place for a woman. We're going to get to that in just a moment. It's no mistake that most affairs occur in the workplace between cohorts. Usually a superior man to an inferior woman in the chain. That's not a mistake. It's the way we're designed as human beings. Because that boss is acting as your husband. Sometimes more than your own husband does. He's telling you what to do. He's complimenting you. He's praising you. He's sacrificing for you. And then you begin to revere him and look up to him and respect him and submit to him. And the only thing left is the sexual relationship. That's it. And often it happens. And so that's why Paul says, old women teach them to submit to their own husbands. Not to anybody else's husband. Not to any other man. Only to their husband. I don't know how that practically works. I've tried to figure that out this week. Thought through it a lot. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible in our working situations. But I guess in best case, if you work for a man... Be the oddball that says, would you please always refer discipline to my husband? Is that possible? Instead of you correcting me all the time, could you correct me through him? Could you compliment me through him? I don't know what it looks like. There's no biblical example given how it looks. I'm just trying to be practical with you because I know some of you work and some of you are committed to that and have to and I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm just trying to give you some biblical advice. And it says be a homemaker primarily, preferably, centrally. Older women teach them to be kind, gentle, considerate, congenial, sympathetic, and in doing this, you're teaching them to be like God. And finally, he says, teach them to be submissive to their own husbands. Submissive does not mean slave. Submissive does not mean unequal, second-class citizen. Everyone is submitted to someone. Everybody is submitted to somebody. And we're all submitted to Christ. 
And Christ is submitted to the Father. It's not, it's not unequal. It's not less valuable. Submissiveness is not a call that you're not talented, you're not gifted, you're not adequate. You're not able to be successful. That's not what it is. Submissiveness does mean that you are a follower in your home. You're following the lead of your husband. Submissive does mean you're under his leadership. It does mean that you're a helper. You're not the pace setter. You're one who helps the pace accomplish where it's going. Submissiveness is to your own husband. Women in general are not to be submitted to men in general. In other words, for example, practically, so we might understand this. No woman in this church is directly to be submitted to me or to Aaron or to Carlton as elders. No woman is to be directly submitted to us except our wives. All of the women in this church should be submitted to their husband and their husband submitted to the church leadership. Do you see that? I have no more say-so over the life of the women in this church than any other man walking on the street. I can't tell you whether to work or not work. I can't tell you whether to have eight children or two children. I can't, I can't mandate those things. I'm not to mandate those things. I'm to lead your husband. I'm to hold him accountable. And he is to lead you. And you, if you have questions, concerns, problems are to go to him. If he can't answer your problem, concern, or question, he's to come to me and then go back to you. God never triangulates. He never puts you in a situation where you're submitted to two different people equally. He says you're submitted to your husband. Your husband is submitted to the elders. The elders are submissive to Christ. Everyone's under an umbrella. Christ is under the umbrella of the Father. Everyone submitted rightly, in order, and decently. I say that because some of you may get offended at times when I talk to your husband about you. It's not offense. It's concern. It's a love. It's protecting myself and you. Did you know pastors have affairs? We're fallen men. Most affairs occur because the woman submits herself to the pastor who is her spiritual leader. Her husband is pushed to the side. A relationship develops and sin occurs. And so Paul says, submit to your own husband, not to men in general. See, this is not what the feminists want to make it. What they want to make it is a statement about how women are less than men. That would be the case if he said women are sub subject to men. That would be the case. What he would be saying is y'all are second class. Men are above you. He doesn't say that. He says in Galatians very clearly in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. You're equal at the foot of the cross. In general, women and men are equal before the eyes of God. Equally talented, equally called, equally gifted, equally loved, equally cherished, equally saved. 
You're equal. Then he says, in the respect of your home, there is an orderly way to have a home. And that way is that the man is the head of the home, the wife is submitted unto him, the children to the wife, to the mother and to the father. Slaves are subject to their masters. There's an order. And when we get out of order, our homes are destroyed. And what is the result? Not just we're unhappy. Not just things don't go quite the way we wanted them to. The Word of God is reviled. That's why I said at the beginning, it's not secondary. It's primary. If we don't have programs, what are we going to spend all our time doing? Can I just insert here? When you have all these programs, how do you ever get done what God calls you to do as a church? Because I'm going to tell you, next week, you think it was hard on women? Next week we get to young men. The call is even harder. And older men, you got a bigger job to do. And if you spend your time in a program doing all these good things, but not the thing God's called you to do, how do you ever get what He's called you to do done? Because it doesn't happen incidentally. It happens intentionally. So what am I encouraging you older women to do? I'm calling you. I'm begging and pleading with you. Pray and find. Sit and pray and see if I want to do it. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. No. Do it. Disciple young women. What you need to pray about is who to disciple. And the best way I know to do that is pray God put someone in my path. The first person that comes along, try it. If it doesn't work, go plan two. Okay? Keep trying till somebody matches and you have a relationship like I've described. It's not optional. It's not like the Social Security system, in or out. You're in. You're in. And though you will be saved whether you do this or not, hear this. Carlton will love this. Hear this. When you stand before your Maker and your Lord, how will it go with you in regard to training young women? Will He say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You were obedient. To the call. Or will he say, I love you, but you totally disregarded my word in that area. And there were scores of young women who suffered because our actions matter. We're saved by Christ and his actions, but we're saved to godly actions. This is the godly call. This is a godly action. And I'm not asking you to think about doing it. I'm asking you to find out who you're going to do it with. Young women, what am I saying to you? It's a tall order, isn't it? You feel defeated today? You feel like, well, I'm, I messed up here. I messed up there. I'm no good there. I failed this. I never understood that. Good. Now, go home and seek Christ and say, I am an absolute, utter failure in all of these things. But Christ has never failed. And He is my righteousness. And be energized. Why? Because these older women are about to find you. 
And when they find you, as hard as it may be, sacrifice so that you might be with them. And spend your days and nights giving yourself to this type of relationship. Younger women, don't go home saying, it's a checklist and I failed on 8 out of 10. You failed on 10 out of 10. But Christ has never failed. And that is not the way you're saved. You're saved by His righteousness unto good works. And now the Calvary is on the way. Older women, I'm putting it on you. The Calvary is...